Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Today we find ourselves in the first epistle to the church at Thessalonica. Let's go ahead and read our text before we jump in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and we start in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not all that long ago, three Christian workers were brutally murdered in eastern Turkey, by a group of young men. These were Muslim young men. Of the three Christians murdered, one was a pastor and one was a missionary. And it took place at a Bible publishing house in Turkey about 300 miles northeast of Antioch, where believers were first called Christians. The young Muslim men set up a meeting with the Christians for a Bible study, but that is not what they came for. Ten Muslim men prepared for the attack on the Christians by gathering guns, bread knives, ropes, and towels in their final act of service towards Allah. When they came for the Bible study, after Pastor Nakati read a chapter from the Bible, the attack began. These believers in Christ were tied up and tortured for three hours. It was a brutal attack. Tillman was stabbed 156 times. Pastor Nakati was stabbed 99 times. And the third Christian was cut so many times it was impossible to count how many times he'd been stabbed. These 10 young Muslim men were so proud of what they'd done, they stood around taking pictures on their cell phones. And even though it looked like a defeat for the work of Christ, God wasn't done with this situation just yet. The funeral for Pastor Nakati turned into a time of celebration as believers gathered to bury one of their own. Remind yourself that around 99% of the population in Turkey is Muslim. Those who have 
genuine faith in Christ are few and far between. Those who have genuine faith in Christ have to be careful in how they share their faith. But on this day, the day of Pastor Nakati's funeral, Christians came from miles around to show their love for Christ and to honor this man who died for the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to this statement that his wife made at his funeral that was picked up by the press and printed in newspapers around the world. His wife, Shemsa, told the world his death was full of meaning because he died for Christ and he lived for Christ. Pastor Nakati demonstrated with his life that Christians are to choose to follow Jesus Christ no matter the outcome. There can be a high cost to follow in the footsteps of the Savior. And every believer in Christ must know this redemption by the blood of the Lamb, this new life in Christ, this transformation means that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This truth is part of the message behind the letter from the Apostle Paul to the new Christians at the church of Thessalonica. The occasion of our letter before us is that Paul had heard a good report from Timothy about the believers in Christ at Thessalonica. Timothy had come to Paul with questions from the church there, and what we have in this letter are Paul's answers to those questions. On the one hand, Paul wanted to commend these believers because they were steadfast, they were solid in their faith, but he wanted to teach them how they should live out their faith when they were persecuted by the lost. Paul wanted to teach them about those who had died in the faith and had gone on to be with the Lord. Now, if you back up in time, you can get a better sense of why this letter was written. Let's turn to the book of Acts, heading to Acts chapter 17. Acts will help us get an understanding of the time frame. Pick up Acts 17, halfway through verse 1. Notice the backstory of our letter. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people." But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security, notice this part, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. At the time of Acts 17, we're looking at Paul's second missionary journey. The year would have been somewhere around 51 AD, less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, Thessalonica was an impressive city. The Ignatian Way, the 700-mile Roman Highway, running from east to west. It went right through the heart of the region of Macedonia. This highway, it passed through the walls of the city. Thessalonica was a major seaport. It was the second largest city in all of Greece. In fact, it actually still is the second largest city of all of Greece, with a population of more than 400,000 people. 
Now, it goes by a different name today, but it is still at the exact same location. At the time of Acts, it's estimated that it was a city of roughly 200,000 people. Verse 1 of chapter 17 of Acts teaches us the Jews had enough of a congregation to have a synagogue in Thessalonica. Paul bypassed two other cities because Thessalonica was the focus. It was a strategic location for reaching people throughout Macedonia with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 in Acts teaches that most of those who first came to Christ at the synagogue in Thessalonica were the devout Greeks. Greek men and women who were fed up with the pagan religions and who worshipped with the Jews because they were attracted to the teachings of the Old Testament. Not the traditions that had been added by men, but the truth of God's word. They were hungry for it, and so they worshipped with the Jews. Verse 5, down to verse 10, it describes a situation that came when Paul and Silas had to be rushed out of town. Jealousy set in for the Jews. Why? Because Paul and his group had pulled many of the Greeks out of the synagogue. And after the mob dragged Jason from his home, we see that when things did settle down a little bit, Jason was able to post bond. But here was the problem. Jason being out on a bond, it forced the believers to promise that the peace of the city, which was very important back then, that the peace of the city, it would not be disturbed again. So walk this through. Think about the effect. If they had to pledge that there would be no more problems, then Paul and Silas, they need to get out of town because if they stayed, the Jews, they would have just simply started another riot. This was a church plant. Having the Jews start a riot was the last thing that they needed. Men and women had been coming to faith in Christ. The church was expanding in this very important key Gentile city. And I walk away with the impression both from Acts and from 1 Thessalonians that Paul was forced to move on before his heart was ready. Paul's concern at this point was for these new believers in Christ who would be hounded for their faith. As you make your way back to 1 Thessalonians, recognize that Paul had sent young Timothy to them to encourage them and to bring back a report about their progress. Timothy wasn't identified in Acts as part of the problem by the Jews. So Timothy, he could still head there without causing a disturbance. Paul was in Corinth when Timothy came back from Thessalonica. And listen to what we're going to read from Paul in chapter 3 of this letter. Listen to what he told the church. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith, and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. You see, Paul, still in Corinth, had just received word from Timothy about the church, and I'm sure Paul wished he could be there, but he couldn't be, so he wrote a letter. And here we have the standard letter format at that time. First, the author. Second, the people receiving the letter. And then some sort of greeting. It should not surprise us to see Silvanus and Timothy with Paul. Silvanus is just another form of Silas. Silvanus is the proper Roman name. Luke always refers to him as Silas. Paul always refers to him as Silvanus. Remember back in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas had their falling out, Paul chose Silas to go with him. And we just saw in Acts 17, Paul and Silas were the two men used by God to start the church there. 
and Paul and Silas were the two men who were chased out of town. Timothy had just been sent to them by Paul, and Timothy had come back with news about the church. All three men were near and dear to the heart of the brothers and sisters in Christ at Thessalonica. The letter was written to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the New Testament understanding and definition of a church. It certainly wasn't a building, but a reference instead to a called out assembly of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who belong to God the Father. The terminology was meant to bring to mind the relationship of believers to one another and the relationship we have with Christ. Don't pass by the beauty of this statement because Paul described the church as people who have received the call of both God the Father and of Christ to redemption and eternal life, and therefore they have now been separated from those of this world. And the way that Paul expresses the words in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, what did Paul do here? Well, Paul elevated the name of Jesus to the point of equality with God the Father, side by side, God the Father and Christ. You see, if Jesus was just a man, there's no way Paul would have elevated his name, making him equal with the Father. But Paul doesn't do it just once, does he? Notice the very next statement, grace you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of the expression, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek term for Lord is the same word that the Jews used when making the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They use this word for Lord to translate Yahweh. This divine Lord is the incarnate Jesus, the Savior, the anointed one, the promised Messiah. Think of Paul's trademark expression, grace to you and peace. Grace is the free and unmerited favor of God bestowed upon guilty mankind in and through Christ. Peace is what comes to those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. Peace is a result of receiving the grace of God. This greeting was a reminder to the church of the grace and peace they've received in their lives as a result of their standing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this greeting was also an expression of desire on the part of the apostle that every believer, every Christian at Thessalonica would continue to grow in the grace and peace of the Lord. Take a second look at verses two through four. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. If you were reading this in the Greek, verse 2, all the way through verse 10, it's one long sentence. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were united in their prayer for the church. They gave thanks to God for them. They gave thanks to God for the work he was doing in their lives. Think of the humility. Think of the love of these men. God had used them. God had used Paul and Silas to establish this church but yet we still read of no pride. We read of no arrogance. We read of three men united in their giving of thanks to the Lord for the great work he had done. Think of the powerful application for every single one of us, because I wonder how many times it is that we sit down and we thank God for the great work he is doing, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. This was the continued practice of these men. This is something they made a priority day in and day out. 
In verse three, it gives us the list. They were thanking God continually for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Their work of faith is the good works that should come out of a man or woman who has saving faith in Christ. I do not believe the reference here to faith at this point in the letter is a reference to their initial faith, but rather Paul was commending them and thanking the Lord that these believers continue to live out their faith by actively working for the Lord. But this was a labor of love. This work for Christ came about because of their love for Christ. It came from their knowledge of the love of Christ for them. Certainly, 1 John 4.19 should come to mind. We love him because he first loved us. And Jesus himself testified in John 14.15, if you love me, keep my commandments. The idea in this passage is working to the point of exhaustion. This type of hard work in the body of Christ is accomplished how? It's accomplished by the love of Christ. Notice the expression, patience of hope. We know from Acts and from the rest of this letter that these dear believers in Christ were facing persecution for their faith. These believers in Christ had their eyes fixed on their hope in Christ. No matter what they faced in their day-to-day life, they were patient, they endured, they pressed on because they knew that whatever life on this earth could throw at them, it was for a short time compared to all of eternity. And they lived for the day when they would stand face to face with the living Christ. They knew and believed that Christ could return at any moment. The imminent return of Christ kept these believers fixed steady upon the task of living for Christ, even though they suffered for their faith. Our hope is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. And our entire lives are lived out in the sight of God, in the sight of our Father in heaven. With verse four, notice first the term beloved brethren. I hope you walk away from studying this text with the sense of love that Paul had for his brothers and sisters in Christ. They were all a part of the family of God. They shared the same love for Christ, love for the Father, and love for one another in the faith. Paul reminds them of their election by God. I want you to stop and just think about the point of the text. Think of why God used Paul to write these words. The intent, the purpose was that Paul, he wanted to remind the church of their status before God and love for one another in the faith. The word for election, it means exactly what you would think. It means chosen. Paul was reminding the church of their position in Christ, who they were, because Knowing your position in Christ, being confident of who you are in Christ, it strengthens our resolve to walk with Christ and stand up to the pressures of the world. These men and women at the church of Thessalonica, they had a receptive heart to the gospel of Christ, and the Lord, he drew them to himself. Look again at our next three verses. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. First, Paul reminds them that the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it did not come to them just in human words, nor was the focus on the messengers. It was on the message but words were simply not enough. The message came with power. It came by the work of the Holy Spirit, and it came in much assurance. 
Paul and Silas knew that the preaching of the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And think about this. If it was just words, if it was just excellence of speech and persuasive words by an entertaining speaker, it simply wouldn't work. We're not just talking about the ability of men and women to believe in God. We're talking about the ability of God to transform men and women to make them new creations in Christ. Human words could never do this. Paul and Silas were confident of the gospel of Christ, but where did that confidence and assurance come from for Paul and Silas? The Holy Spirit. And where did the new converts get their confidence or assurance from that the message that they were hearing from Paul and Silas was true? The Holy Spirit. And I think that is what Paul was getting at, that the confidence or assurance these new believers had, it came from the Spirit of God, because apart from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, men and women would not see their need of a Savior. Remember what Jesus predicted in John 16, 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit. When he has come, he will what? Convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But even how Paul and Silas lived among them demonstrated that it was God, it was God working in them. And their witness was not just the words they spoke, but their witness was also how they lived among men. Paul had in mind the power and conviction that comes from one who is walking in the Spirit. It all pointed to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit at work. And notice the progression in this passage. These men and women followed Paul and Silas as Paul and Silas taught them to follow the Lord. Paul continues on that they received the word in much affliction. Remember, right before Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, they had been beaten and arrested at Philippi. And it is just as clear from Acts that the preaching of the gospel at Thessalonica, it did not sit well with the Jews. From day one, these new believers understood the truth that belief in the gospel of Christ, it brings persecution. But notice the description at the end of verse six. These new believers, even though they had a tough road ahead of them, they followed the Lord with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit who enabled Paul and Silas to preach with power enabled these believers to have faith with joy in spite of all the persecution they faced. The deeper the faith, the more joy a Christian has. I believe a root cause for believers having little joy in their lives is shallow faith, a lack of trust in the Lord. Joy is listed in Galatians 5 as part of the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was their source of joy. Their situation, it didn't make them bitter. They allowed the Holy Spirit to bring them joy. And the end result is that the progression continued. They, in turn, became the example to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. These two provinces included the area all the way down to Corinth, where Paul and his group were. These brothers and sisters in the faith became the example, the model, if you will, for Christians living throughout this entire region. This is what a church facing persecution should look like, being known for their joy and commitment to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture in this passage of the triune God at work, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of these believers. One of the things that impresses me the most in this text is that these Christians hadn't known the Lord all that long. Now, opinions differ whether or not Paul and Silas were able to be with them for a few weeks or a few months before they were forced to move on. Either way, these were 
new converts, babes in Christ, but yet they lived out their faith with joy as an example to others. So Paul builds off this and tells the church in verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Like a mighty trumpet blast, like the sound of great thunder, the gospel of Christ sounded forth from this group of believers. The joy in the face of persecution, it amplified their testimony for Christ. This was just a part of their walk with the Lord. This was just a part of the work of the Spirit in their lives. And think back to what we said at the beginning. Thessalonica had had a major road heading through it. This port city had many, many travelers passing through. It would only make sense that many of those passing through came into contact with the followers of Christ. Word had spread beyond these provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. These Christians had done such an excellent job representing Christ and his gospel that Paul said at the end of verse 8, so that we do not need to say anything. Listen carefully. The wording used actually means that he was hearing in Corinth reports from men and women who had heard the gospel of Christ while they were in Thessalonica. Remember, Thessalonica was a major port town, and Paul was in Corinth, also a major port town. Word was actually getting back to him about those who had heard the gospel while at Thessalonica. Notice how our last two verses build on this. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Pay attention now, verse 9 starts out, for they themselves, ask yourself who this is. This is the people giving Paul the reports about the believers at Thessalonica. And the way this is written gives us every indication that this isn't one little isolated case. This was an ongoing situation. This kept happening. And the first part of the report was the manner of entry Paul and Silas had at Thessalonica. But then it moved to how the believers there had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The truth of the gospel of Christ, it exposed the falsehood of idolatry. I cannot imagine how this must have ministered to Paul and his group after everything Paul and Silas had been through to hear of such a strong and bold witness for Christ. And the Greek in this passage is written in the active voice, which means that their conversion, their turning from idols was something done on their part. This was a conscious decision on their part. These men and women turn from the idols to serve the one true God. This tells us that a large part of the church at Thessalonica was probably made up of Gentiles who turned from the pagan gods. Verse 10 gives us another beautiful picture of this church, men and women who waited for their Savior to return. Now, this is important. Don't miss this. The early church at Thessalonica, taught by the Apostle Paul himself, believed in the literal return of Christ that could come at any time. They were waiting for God the Son to return from heaven. This same Jesus, raised from the dead by God the Father, he will return. The resurrection of Christ is seen in the Word of God as the proof of who he is. It's the proof that he is God the Son, and it is the ultimate proof of the gospel of Christ. But the resurrection also proves that his words are true and that he will return for his church. 
Notice the last part of verse 10. And he will what? What does the text say? Deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, this is the wrath to come. This is something that has not yet taken place. Many would have you believe that this only refers to God's eternal wrath against sin and that it does not refer to the wrath of God unfolded in the second half of the tribulation in the day of the Lord. But look at the context. The context answers that question. Look at the context. These believers were waiting for his son from heaven. These precious believers were looking up. They believed the Lord could return at any time to deliver us from the wrath to come. Listen to Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the mindset of the first century church, and I hope, I hope it's your mindset too. The believers at Thessalonica fixed their hope on the return of Jesus Christ. They believed it. And if you were to ask me why I do not believe that the rapture can be after the tribulation, this verse right here would be on my list. Because if the post-tribulation view was correct, let's think about it for a second. These Christians at Thessalonica would not have looked forward to the return of Christ at any moment because they would have known that the church would then have to face the tribulation first. The church would have to flee for their lives before Christ would return. But of course, the rapture comes first, which is why these believers could have confidence and hope as they look for the return of Christ, knowing that Jesus will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Listen to the teaching of Revelation 6 about this wrath that is to come. Revelation 6, we're going to pick it up with verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, listen, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath, has come, and who is able to stand? And the answer is, of course, no one. Do not underestimate how bad it will be during the coming wrath of God upon this sinful world. And this is what we will see that Paul himself said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. Paul wrote, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same subject as that of chapter 1 the coming wrath of God. It's a reality. And Jesus himself, he is the path to our escape. A little while back, the History Channel had a show on about the man who predicted 9-11. It was about a man by the name of Rick Riscorla. Long before September the 11th happened, Rick developed an evacuation plan for the bank he worked for. You see, Rick was head of security at the Morgan Stanley Bank. Their offices were high up in the South Tower at the World Trade Center. And Rick, he was absolutely convinced that one day Osama bin Laden would use jet planes to try to destroy the World Trade Center. His escape plan and all the preparations he made were massively unpopular 
with the staff at Morgan Stanley. Most of them thought he was completely out of his mind. And when American Airlines Flight 11 hit World Trade Center Tower 1 at 8.46 in the morning, the building officials began to broadcast that people should stay put and remain where they were. Rick ignored their message and began the orderly evacuation of Morgan Stanley's 2,800 employees on 20 floors of World Trade Center Tower 2 and 1,000 employees in World Trade Center 5. Rick reminded everyone to be proud to be an American, and he used his bullhorn to keep people calm as they left the building. Rick had most of Morgan Stanley's 2,800 employees out of Tower 2 by the time United Airlines Flight 175 hit World Trade Center Tower 2 at 9.07 a.m. After reaching safety, Rick returned into the building to rescue others who were still inside, and he was last seen heading up the stairs of the 10th floor of the collapsing building number two. His remains were never recovered. Because of his actions, only a handful of the thousands of employees of Morgan Stanley died on that day, four of which were Rick and his three deputies who followed him back into the building. The remainder of the broadcast, it focused on the employees of Morgan Stanley, who are now in tears. As they praised Rick for saving their lives, many felt guilty. Many were apologetic because they had thought Rick was a fool. Because Rick kept harping on the staff of the importance of being ready for the day they thought would never come. The problem with bad theology is that it is dangerous. When the gospel is watered down, when the gospel of Christ is not clear, when men deny the holiness of God, when they deny the wrath of God, it gives men and women the false message like a voice coming over the loudspeaker that they don't need to do anything because everything is going to be just fine. Revelation 6, it gives us a clear picture of the wrath of the Lamb. It's not for us who have put on redemption in Christ, but for those who have bought into the lies of Satan, the wrath of a holy God will come upon them. But praise the Lord that Christ delivers his own from this coming wrath. And praise the Lord that we can look forward to his coming because we can know that he's going to rescue us. Be sure of your redemption in Christ. And let us pray that the Lord would use us just as he used the church at Thessalonica to warn others, to help others prepare for the wrath that will come. So they too can look to the glorious hope we have in Christ. The rapture, Israel, the tribulation, the kingdom of God, the millennium, the judgment seat of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. These are just some of the topics that we cover in our book, What Lies Ahead. We wanted to write a book that was easy to understand, that would give a good, solid overview of the end times. You can find it on our website, returntotheword.com. That book again is What Lies Ahead. And if you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. It helps us. It helps us to tell others about this study of God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the